Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. All right, welcome everyone to the Maximus podcast. I'm very excited today to have entrepreneur and investor Robbie Bent. He is currently the CEO and co-founder of Inward. It is an at-home app that teaches you how to do breath work and that's paired along with a physical space, sauna and ice bath, and a social uh, hangout space as well that provides community um, to create kind of a comprehensive experience for their clients. He also studied at Ivy Business School at Western University and has helped create other businesses such as uh, Envy Energy, Romley, and has worked on Ethereum as well. It's fair to say he has a, a broad focus across health and technology that kind of reinvents the way that we interact with each other in our environment in order to improve our health and build better communities. Uh, also on the side, uh, Robbie is a philanthropist who volunteers his time with the Big Brother Foundation as a mentor, volunteers with Habitat for Humanity and the Covenant House of Toronto, which serves to save homeless youth in Canada. Uh, definitely one of the more interesting uh, people that I I'm, uh, have the pleasure of being associated with. And so I look forward to uh, chatting with you today, Robbie. Awesome. Super excited. Uh, love what you guys do at Maximus. I follow you. I've been following you for a long time. So really honored that you uh, invited me to come and chat. Oh, it's our, our honor indeed. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, we love to start out with our, our first segment called Making the Man in order to really like dig in and understand uh, you know, our guests and provide positive role models, uh, masculine role models for a, a lot of our community. So I'd love to start from the beginning. So just tell me a little bit about where did you grow up and what your upbringing was like? I grew up in Guelph, 100,000 person city outside of Toronto in Canada. I would say standard sort of suburban city life. Mm-hmm. Um, family was privileged, which was quite, quite lucky. Um, so never, never really had issues financially or concerns there. Mm. And family was very, let's say, um, interested in success Mm. and in my success. I was the first born. Um, my mom loved me a ton, really wanted me to achieve. And so I remember even going back to grade two, you know, putting up my hand in class, trying to show I had the right answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, for that feedback, that validation. And so from a really young age, this idea that like success achievement was important for validation was sort of part of my upbringing. Um, so happy to dive into that a little more. But yeah, I think standard standard city life. Um, I'm 36 now. So mm-hmm. this would have been 20 plus, you know, years ago. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's so interesting how our early kind of uh, family and childhood experiences, uh, you know, shape us. So it sounds like, you know, coming from a successful family, you're expected to follow in their footsteps and, you know, continue the family line. What was that experience like for you? Was there like pressure did you feel in order to kind of live up to expectations and going through school, et cetera? Yeah, I think so. And it sort of warped my entire, you know, career path, values, I was a huge driver that even to this day, after I would say eight years of a lot of Mm self-work is is one of like the clear things I'm trying to work on. And so for people out there that are like very type A, disciplined, competitive, it's that need to win that validation that is always present. And so it was, hey, I'm not good enough. Mm. You know, that is the common thread is, is I'm not good enough. I'm my own worst critic. And you've probably heard this you know, you never talk to someone else the way you, you talk to yourself. And mm-hmm. so it was, I want to go to the best business school. Why? Well, my dad was in business. Mm-hmm. I didn't even really think about what it is I actually want to build, what I want to create at that age. I thought, you know, I want to have money. I want yeah. girls to like me. I want to be cool. Like that's the kind of stuff that was driving my entire high school it was like play sports, do well in school, go to good college, make money, mm-hmm. have nice things. And so because external validation was so important to me and I was so self-critical, I felt good getting attention from others, right. friends, women, you know, I wanted success and credibility. So like extreme ambition for this external validation. And th- that, you know, drove 
uh, my work ethic mm-hmm. in school. It drove me wanting to go to business school and choosing the program. And, you know, I never really looked into other things. I just saw what my dad did and thought, Hey, this is the best business school in Canada. This mm-hmm. is where I want to go. I'm going to compete hard and I'm going to, I'm going to go there. Right. And then for four years at school it was, you know, okay, well, what are the smartest kids at this school do while they go into investment banking? Right. I, you know, I didn't even know what that was. I'd heard, I got to school and I heard iBanking. I thought it was internet banking. Right, right. (laughs) I find out, oh, it's investment banking. And never even thought to ask, well, what does this career entail? Mm. And, and, you know, and you hear these stories about 120 hour weeks and very poor culture and and they're true. And never thought like, oh, am I going to enjoy this? Is this, is this helping serve anyone? It was just, okay, this is what the smart kids do. And I want to prove I'm, I'm smart and I want to make money. And so- that was the arc of my career path through, you know, all the way from, from elementary school uh, to university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of a curious thing because obviously, you know, you kind of look back on it with, with obviously the, the blessing of um, hindsight and wisdom that, you know, the, the feeling of sort of incompleteness, right? Or kind of, uh, um, you know, not ever feeling good enough, as you put it. Obviously, that's not a great... Uh, you know, driver for people. But on the other hand, it did push you to study hard, compete in a competitive society, obviously get a good education, certainly open up economic opportunities. So it sounded like it did some good and bad. How do you sort of reconcile these things? And and maybe like with one day, if you think about having your own kind of kids, like what do you want to like take the lesson from, from your childhood and want to impart, you know, maybe going forward? That's really tough question because I think I'd correct the other way. And Mm -hmm. so even in my, the way I'm acting now, it's trying to, I'm thinking in my mind not to have so much discipline, Mm -hmm. really encourage my child to figure out what they want to do because, because they love it. And so I think what I gave up, so one, I would never regret those choices or feelings because they, they're very important for growth and we'll get into it, but you know, I had a venture back company that failed completely. Mm -hmm. I was fully broke. And as I mentioned, this was all I cared about was succeeding. And so that's what actually broke me and sent me down this path of of health and wellness, which ended up changing my life. Uh, So I would never say like, oh, I wish I was raised differently. I'm very, very content. Now what I had given up is feelings of balance and Mm -hmm. passion and self-love and play. And so in a life that's driven by achievement and the I mm-hmm. and task lists, it becomes very difficult. Like I didn't even know I was a creative person until the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I would have said, you know, yeah, I'm a operations person. I'm extremely meticulous, detail oriented. I'm like, I get up and I crush tasks. Right. And it turns out that's actually not my skill set at all. Mm. It's just something I learned recently was like creating these healthy experiences uh, that's my passion you know just selling to people right. creating a vision like facilitating breathwork sessions in a sauna and watching people smile like the the opening of the heart and the feeling of satisfaction that comes through that is, is significantly more than achievement and so right. while the drive was important and built a ton of great skills i think that's what um self-growth can sometimes take away from totally by the way I, I i love your story because i think um you know we have a lot of people certainly in the tech and entrepreneurship community who are part of our community listen to this podcast and you know when they hear like play and joy and passion and and breath work and you know it, it can come off as a little hippie but i think the interesting thing about you is you, you actually have the credibility right in terms of coming from you know our world right like you were in tech you had a venture back company went to business school you were very much on the the sort of traditional sort of road to success. And I think, you know, you've sort of evolved and, and, and found this sort of path, um, which I actually think is a very important lesson for the people um, that are that are, that are listening to us. So why don't we actually get into that? I'd love to hear um, uh, where was sort of the inflection point? Like maybe talk a little bit about your experiences studying business um, and then maybe going on to, you know, when you graduated, like what path, what path did you choose after business school and how did that shape you? Sure. And so I alluded to it and this is just like such an amazing story. So I'm super excited to tell, mm-hmm. especially if these are your, your listeners, cause there's just a lot of meat and, and learnings here. Totally. Um, and so I, I chose investment banking again, driven by, by money. And yeah. some of my idols were, you know, investment managers, Warren Buffett, Seth Klarman, John Paulson, mm-hmm. uh, while I was working 
at this hedge fund, I was investing in distressed debt, doing crazy hours. Like I got a stapler thrown at me once, oh. you know, multiple all nighters, common stuff you hear in, in banking and in the finance world. Right. And I was obsessed with like investing. I read every book I could about it. And in 2008, the credit crisis happened. Mm -hmm. And I came in one day and we had a, you know, a, I forget the amount, but like a massive fund, let's say a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And we were investing in publicly traded distressed bonds and, and loans. Mm -hmm. And so when the credit crisis hit, all those things, the company was half hedge fund, half private equity vehicle. None of the private equity vehicle companies could be sold in that environment. Mm -hmm. So I came in one day and they had sold the entire fund. And in what was the best environment for distressed in investing ever, uh, I was wiped out and out of a job just in one day like wow. that. And so I was living in LA and like, man, this is awful. Yeah. And not only that, I was kind of looking around at people and, and you know, out of shape, pretty miserable, no hobbies, not a lot about like family values. And, and again, this is a small microcosm, sure. so I'm not going to generalize, but I, I kind of looked around and said, like, I'm not motivated to be this person mm -hmm. in 20 years. Yeah. However, at that point, making money was still the driver. And yeah. so I kind of started thinking like, well, where can I do that? And to me, software engineering and tech was pretty foreign. Mm -hmm. This was 2010. So like Y Combinator is just getting started. Mm -hmm. There, there aren't really this concept of, of like unicorns. And so I did something that looking back was is super dumb, like really had very low chance of success. Mm -hmm. But I partnered with a technical co-founder in Toronto and we built a, a global telecom platform. Mm. And the idea was to create a SIM card that could virtually change identities, very similar to how Google Fi works mm -hmm. now. And so we were able to have this like sort of magic prototype that used somebody else's SIM card system. And when travelers would go away and we focused on really wealthy mm -hmm. investors, they would be in UK making a call back to the US and it would say, you know, they get a text message saying, hey, you just saved $500. Mm -hmm. And that was the order of magnitude for, for roaming. If you remember back yeah. in that time, it was like $5 for one meg of, of data right. on these phones. And we thought, wow, this is amazing. And so we were able to do that to raise money uh, from some, some super wealthy individuals who thought, wow, this is, you know, I can use my phone, mm -hmm. my most important thing when I'm traveling and do business, this is going to be huge. Right. Um, and so my driver still was, I didn't care about roaming. I just thought like, hey, this is a great, there's a market opportunity here. This is, a, is, is great. I'm going to be a CEO, uh, you know, and again, the, the ego was kind of driving that decision. Mm. And I can, I can, I'll stop there and see if there's anything you want to double click on, but I can also just talk about how, what the results of that were. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's a great story, you know, and I, I, I love that you mentioned that this is the path that smart people do. Because I, I certainly think when you go, whether if you come from that background or you or you you don't come from that background, I, I certainly like I had no idea what investment banking and consulting was until I went to Harvard. And then that was like par for the course. Literally 50 percent of the graduates went into those fields. And if you did well and you're at the top of your class, I graduated with highest honors. They're like, that's that's what smart people do. They literally recruit from the top five percent. So whether or not you wanted to do it, if you're kind of like an ambitious person and everyone around you is like, well, that's, that's what the best people do. You almost feel like, oh, okay, that's, that's the logical next step. Um, you know, but I had a lot of classmates who had this mentality. Maybe they knew that the culture was not that great and obviously it has a negative impact on your health, but they're like, I'm going to do it for two years. I'll take the sacrifice. It'll set me up, you know, as a stepping stone to the next, uh, best thing. Um, but you know, what I kind of found is you can't like pretend like you, you go through like war for two years and you come out like, totally normal on the other side of things. So I'm, I'm curious, kind of curious what your experience was sort of leaving that world and what was the long-term residual impact on you? Yeah. So it was a, it's a, it's a death trap. So you, you do your first two years in banking and then you generally, the thing next is like, Oh, the smartest banking analysts go to the buy side. Mm -hmm. and so that means I'm going into private equity or a hedge fund where instead of supporting investors, I'm now making the investments and like, Whoa, that's the thing. We're going to be looking at companies. We're going to be choosing them, investing in them. And that's going to be exciting. Mm -hmm. And now my workload's going from hundred hours a week to 75. Right. Huge. And so then you get in that path and your, and your, your pay goes up, your prestige goes up. You're now an associate at a buy side firm and you know, you're giving a speech at your business school and it's super powerful lock-in. Mm -hmm. And then if you make it through those two years, like I, I was lucky, like who knows if I would have left, you know, my one year into the, the hedge fund stint, the hedge fund exploded. Mm -hmm. And in 2008 in LA, 2009, there, were, there was no hedge funds 
hiring. And so I just thought, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do something else. Right. And doing that something else was, there was so much discomfort. I knew nothing about hardware engineering. I thought I knew mm -hmm. something about raising money because right. I worked in finance. I didn't know anything about that, about hiring. I made every mistake you could make. Mm -hmm. And that's why the company ended up failing, but sitting there being the dumbest person in the room is, is just very challenging. There's a lot of discomfort and that's why it's difficult when as a super smart person mm -hmm. in finance, you're getting paid four years in, you know, potentially more than half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, if I want to switch my career now, that's a really hard yeah. decision to make. And so they call it like golden handcuffs. And then as you get more and more senior, your pay comes, you know, in equity performance bonuses and those things pay out over a year. So then you now have to walk away from salary plus, uh, massive compensation. And so it's, it's very tough to leave those roles once you're, once you're kind of entrenched in them. Yeah. I, I found that to be the same, even with my peers who, you know, um, weren't necessarily super financially driven, but, but they're like, it almost seems stupid to walk away from huge sums of money. Particularly it's like your, your parents took 10 years, 20 years to, to, to make that much money. Uh, and you can make it in a year. And it almost seems like, you know, like delusional to like, to turn that down. But, you know, you, you realize like, well, what's the opportunity cost, right. Of, of, you know, that lifestyle and, and, and the opportunity cost of other things that you could be doing. Um, on that note, I'm, I'm really curious because I feel like, uh, people still do consulting and banking, but it's no longer like probably the number one hottest career coming out of like college or business school. I would actually argue like tech entrepreneurship and being a founder is, um, and funnily, I tweeted about this the other day. I said, you know, the best and worst thing about Silicon Valley is uh, it allows people to be founders who never could have been, right? Because they wouldn't have been promoted into the role as CEO. They don't, maybe they don't look the part, so to speak. Um, on the other hand, I also think there's a lot of people who become founders who have no business becoming founders and, and being leaders, um, but it's become easy or maybe it's become cool to kind of do that. So uh, I'd love for you to talk about that because, you, you know, you talked about sort of the ego and the I in terms of like being a CEO um, and, 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 you know, like what should people watch out for in making a decision to like become a founder? So, yeah, there's so much here. And again, if you find something interesting, feel free. We can we can go to that specific point. And I'll just start with my first journey mm -hmm. for those who are listening and like, how do I, I get started? And, and, you know, like you're ready to walk into discomfort and imposter syndrome mm. because you, you literally don't know what you're doing. And so for me, like some of the mistakes I made, okay, well, you know, we're building this global telecom solution. I didn't know anything about lean startup. I had no mentors. I was building hardware in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, okay. We want to build the software on the SIM card. We want to build the SIM card overlay itself so it can fit on other SIMs and slip into a phone. So you never actually have to take it out. Mm -hmm. We want to build the backend building platform. We want to build the carrier interconnect platform. And not only that, it's going to work in iPhone. Uh, I'm not even sure if Android was around when we first started, but it's going to work in like Nokia devices mm -hmm. and all these phones. And oh, it's going to be for North American travelers going to Asia and Africa and the UK. And it's got to work and be perfect. And you know, the founder now for me, it's like, man, we should have just built the software on the SIM everything else we could have rented or licensed, right. we should have made it just for the iPhone and for travelers in Toronto going to the UK and watch mm. what happened. So, you know, that, that was the first mistake, which is not knowing what I was doing and then not being aggressive enough to ask for help. Mm. So if you don't feel comfortable reaching out and asking for help, even now, you know, I'll ask for help 15 times a day. Mm. Like, Hey, can I be on your podcast? You know, mm. can I, can I, uh, can you try my product? Can sure. you share this? And like, it's just rejection city. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're not comfortable with that or that scares you, like that's what makes a leader is like nobody cares about your business. Mm -hmm. So you have to tell the story. You have to ask and you have to keep asking until you generate a certain amount of hype. So I think as a founder, you know, you look back and if that scares you, it's also like maybe I'm going to I'm going to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to learn. And so the, the interesting thing, how that business ended, we built this crazy solution, had about 100 people working for us mm -hmm. early on. I thought. I don't know what I'm doing. If we had somebody more mm -hmm. senior helping me, you know, we're going to, we're going to grow faster. I'm, we're going right. to be able, it's going to, we're going to make this work. And so we went and hired somebody, very senior executive from one of the leading telcos in Canada. Said, okay, this is it. This guy's going to close all these deals with all these carriers. We're going to get our SIM card in all their stores. And the first thing that happened is we went from seven employees to 30 mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, 
I don't really know what's happening anymore. I don't know who's doing what, like to grow that fast without the proper systems Mm -hmm. and like almost pre-revenue, pre-product market fit, I would say. And it became very difficult. And and so we were just raising money all the time to like build this thing and not understand who was doing what. So like completely mismanaged because Mm -hmm. we hired someone who had 7,000 people working for them because I I didn't have the confidence in myself that I can do it. So like if you're listening, the best thing you can do is talk to people who are one step ahead of you, you know, and now there's time you could go to Y Combinator, you could go to on deck, you could just follow on Twitter, like none of that stuff existed. Mm -hmm. And I personally just thought like, Oh, I can just do this myself. So one of the lessons I learned from that is when I want to learn something, who are the best three people in the world? Mm -hmm. Can I get them on the phone for one hour to like dive deep? And then any new skill you want to learn talking to the best three people or people who know what they're doing, Mm. even though it takes time. And we do this for every single thing we do, whether it's like a physical space, build out an app, build out raising funding. We just call it a sprint, like a research sprint. We interview three amazing people and it's, it's not the time it takes. It's how much time does it save from making serious mistakes? Mm. And so going back to our business, we'd spent about 25 million bucks over four years. Last two years were extremely contentious. Mm. Uh, dealing with investors that wanted more warrants that were challenging, uh, delays in the development because of what we were building. Mm-hmm. Finally, when it's ready, we had spent so much and roaming prices had declined by 90%. And so strategically, we were using something that for carriers, the providers, it's kind of a loss leader. They can cut roaming prices anytime. It's all profit for them. Mm-hmm. So if they wanted to keep a corporate deal, they could just throw in the the roaming. And then from a consumer standpoint, the product experience, it wasn't seamless enough. Mm. And so that was another thing we got into Best Buy. Oh man, going to be amazing. We're in Best Buy. Like right. we've, we've made it. And one out of 10 people couldn't install the SIM or had a problem and would, would come and say, Hey, this is an issue. And so, you know, the retailer doesn't want to carry that yeah. and deal with that. And so it turned out it was too hard to use mm-hmm. for the retail customer who travels infrequently. And then it wasn't cost competitive with, with corporates. And so we built this amazing thing, but then distribution was super tough. Mm-hmm. So I learned about that. And so where we end up, we spent too much money. I had to fire the entire team over a two year period, which was like super awful. So yeah. thinking about being a founder, it's like, okay, I'm letting people down people mm-hmm. that like worked hard with me. That that's, you know, also the people skills of being a founder are kind of the most important, the most challenging part. Yeah. Um, but something really, really interesting happened. So, you know, I got personally sued. We lost all the money. Oof. I, at one point, had to take equipment out of a data center because they were going to shut us down. So this mm-hmm. is before AWS. Okay. So we get a note like, hey, pay 100000 we're going to shut you down. So, uh, well, you know what? We're going to make a server change, <laughs> like uh-huh. getting our equipment to move to the next data center. Yeah. And so I go down with the ship. Business fails. One of my friends had invested a million dollars. So like, imagine what it's like to see this guy now out in public, right, right. how that feels. You know, my, my parents had invested money. It was the first time I'd like raised money on my own for like my own thing. Yep. And I felt like a complete failure. Totally. And yeah. so there's pros and cons. One was, okay, I'm this weird generalist. Like, what is my skill? I'm not an engineer. I'm not a designer. I'm not really a BD person. Yeah. I've done all these weird things. And at the time I was like, I actually don't have any skills. I had no confidence. The investment bank I worked at, mm-hmm. you know, the hedge fund exploded, the business failed. Yeah. Um, and so I just felt it was ultimate, ultimate low, really like, I'm not this, I'm not good enough theme coming back. But the interesting thing after the failure was the two years leading up to it were terrible. Mm -hmm. It's always like, what am I going to do for a salary? Oh, I'm not going to have any money. You know, I'm not going to be able to afford my lifestyle. And and what am I going to do? And how am I going to get a new job? And then as soon as the company failed, like, boom, there was a new job. There was a new opportunity. Mm -hmm. And Failure is not actually durable. Mm. So you fail once, you fail again, you fail a third time, like you keep going. And if you work hard and are aggressive, there's always a company you can join, a school you can like teach at or learn from, you know, a a company you can start. So really take away, even if you shouldn't be a founder, which I shouldn't have been, Mm -hmm. that was the worst case scenario. I completely screwed up, made a ton of mistakes, burned through a bunch of money, failed and you know, learned doing that. And which I realize now is like, I actually have all these skills. Mm-hmm. I can hire, I can build teams, I can raise money, I can sell. Like I had a toe in all these different things. So moral of the story for founders is like, just 
massive emotional roller coaster and challenge. Mm -hmm. But no matter whether you succeed or fail, I think there's it's an enormous opportunity for for growth. Absolutely. There's so many great lessons there in what you just shared. I mean, the three that I take away is, you know, people always talk about you have to be willing to take risk, but I, I think you bring up a very important corollary that people don't talk enough about, which is you have to be willing to take rejection, right? And over and over again. So that I think, uh, you know, you, you either have to have thick skin or be able to develop it pretty quickly. Uh, second, I love what you said about, you know, uh, you're going to have imposter syndrome. You don't know what you're doing, uh, especially if it's the first time around. Maybe even the second time around. This is my third company. I'm not even sure I completely know what I'm doing. But I love that you you level up by calling the three best people in the world in that particular area of expertise, whether it's building an app, investing, et cetera, to level up really quickly. That's a great, I think, very practical tip um, you know, that people can take away. And then third, I love your point about sort of failure not being uh, you know, durable. Uh, I, and I, I see people, not, not just you, but like a lot of people bounce back from incredible you know, failures and go on and do very well. Like people have very short term memory too. the founders of Clubhouse, which is valued at $4 billion, which we were just talking about before the show, people forget they they did like, I don't know how many half dozen dozen failed social apps before then. Um, and then now they, they, uh, you know, found, uh, hit, hit it, hit, hit like, you know, uh, iron the this time around. But you know, that's the nice thing about I think, you know, the world is like people don't really care long term about your failures, they're just going to remember you for your one success. And of course, how you treated them. Yeah. And if you're a younger founder, you know, you're 20 to 30, like now's the time to do it. And I've seen some of your tweets about measuring your life based on money and success or, or children. Mm -hmm. And so something I'm thinking about now, I have a beautiful, amazing fiance who actually saved my life mm. and we're going to have kids this year. And, and awesome. you know, and now the risk profile changes significantly. And so it's something I would say, even if okay, I'm ready to take the risk. Like what risk are you taking at 24 or 26? Okay, fine. You might go broke. So what? Like if you don't have a mortgage, you don't have debt, which was super lucky for me, yeah. or um, you don't have a family to support. Like that's, again, like we talked about these golden handcuffs for investment bankers. It's the same, same thing. The longer you wait, uh, the more responsibility increases. Totally. So t tell us about the next step. So, you know, this company obviously dissolved uh, you know, you're, you're probably not feel, feeling great out, out of the personal and professional sort of, uh, you know, uh, out, outcome of that. Um, so how did you, how did you sort of manage, uh, kind of going through, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of your grief around that, um, and finding sort of a new path forward? Yeah. So this is where it gets like a little bit out there or a little bit like different mm -hmm. than the, the traditional path. And so at the same time this was happening, I was dating a much younger girl than me, found out she was cheating on me. And so it was my, you know, personal ego around work and then around like, am I attractive? Am I a good person? Yeah. was just like destroyed. And so I also struggled with ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really am attracted to stimulation. Yeah. And so like, startups, excitement, work, extreme sports, and drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so I actually had, uh, during these last two years, a pretty bad drug problem. Mm -hmm. And so I was using cocaine on the weekends just to, to disappear, yeah. basically. And that was combined with these failures is like rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And so one of our investors said, hey, why don't you come out to Israel? And you know how to build hardware companies now and, and build teams. Mm -hmm. I've worked with you a bunch. Let's find a company here and fund it. And so in Israel, I, I decided like, okay, well, I'm going to move out there and get healthy mm -hmm. and like no new friends, right? Starting over, just complete restart, be away from these unhealthy habits. So I went out there and it's pretty intense. I'm not Jewish. I don't speak Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Some points I, I lived in this small city called Ashkelon, just outside of the Gaza border. It was my first time hearing like missile sirens where yes. you would go and hide in like a little room yeah. and just kind of like out there, like, what am I doing with my <laughs> life? Like I'm in this place alone. Um, however, in that space, I was going to come home for Christmas break mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I just thought like, you know what, this isn't that affordable right now. I'm looking to buy a company and I don't have any money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to go do a Vipassana meditation retreat okay. instead. And so that's something I've been, interested in meditation since high school, like 10 minutes a day using headspace, heard it a bunch of places, mm -hmm. but not really feeling super comfortable with the practice. Yeah. And so I went, uh, you know, over Christmas break, ending on New Year's in the north of Israel, the small town, Dagan Bet. I don't even know if you can call it a town, but mm -hmm. 
you know, did this first 10 day meditation experience. And at that experience, I learned about psychedelic medicines. Mm. And so I thought, okay, this is pretty interesting. I might as well try it out. And so somebody at the retreat invited me sunrise forest, like experience at this university campus. Mm -hmm. We met at the campus 4am, take LSD, go into the woods. Mm -hmm. And I have pretty beautiful experience, but not, not like life changing one time Mm -hmm. kind of thing, but definitely very powerful. And so after the meditation retreat, I was still drinking Mm -hmm. occasionally and decided, you know, maybe about a year later, uh, while I was working in Israel, like I want to, this drinking is actually the problem, the drinking, which would then lead to to drug use. Mm -hmm. And so that's something, you know, what what are the options? And so I kind of like looked around, I'd heard about psychedelics because I'd I'd done that experience. Mm -hmm. And then I I learned about ayahuasca. And so myself and one of my best friends flew to Peru, like kayak deep into the jungle, Mm -hmm. like stilted huts. And we did uh, four ayahuasca ceremonies. And during those ceremonies, a lot of the stuff I mentioned when we started the call, I'm like really comfortable talking about mm. like these old urges and needs yeah. and, and beliefs. And like at the time, I didn't even know any of these things. They were just subconscious. Yeah. Like I, I did it because it made me, me feel good. And so I start to realize like, why am I so self-critical? What does it mean to love yourself? Like why was I even using drugs? And like mm. one of the first times I smoked a cigarette in, in grade eight to be cool mm-hmm. came up. You know, and then like being bullied, like these things came, these like emotions came up and were processed. Amazing. And after that, I came back to Toronto and I've actually been sober ever since, um, which is almost six, six years now. Congratulations. And I found a ton of power with a daily mindfulness practice, Mm -hmm. uh, retreats every once in a while and psychedelic medicine use a few times a year Mm -hmm. with like a, you know, trained guide, psychotherapy also um, I'll stop there and we can, we can chat about whatever you want, but would say, I don't think psychedelics are a silver bullet. Mm. So I, I don't think you can just go and like take these medicines. Like I, I've found enormous, uh, differences versus peers who have used them by working with mm-hmm. trained psychotherapists, uh, having community. And I mentioned my fiance who had saved my life and, and why. And, and so. I think there's an entire system around these things mm-hmm. that, that work for behavior change, but I'll, but I'll stop there and we can kind of go into whatever you, you like. Yeah. I mean, what, a, what an amazing story. And thank you so much for, you know, your, your openness and sharing that. I, that's why I think, you know, it, you are such an interesting role model because you, you come from such a straight laced background, but you know, you talk about how these things really transformed your life. You know, it's funny too, when, you know, when you talk about sort of self-love, self-compassion, I almost feel like people who are uninitiated, if I, if I, can be allowed to use that term it, it almost makes people cringe right because it sounds so you know sort of hippie maybe it doesn't sound masculine um right um but you know i i actually find that like even some of the strongest toughest guys i know when they start to get into their emotional maturity their psychological development they start to realize some of the things that you were realizing right like where does all this, like, where does this drive, like this incessant need or thirst or hunger come from? Yes, maybe some of it is natural to sort of being a man or, or like, you know, functioning in society. But yeah, you know, the chip on the shoulder, I would say, you know, it's often coming from someplace, whether it's early childhood experiences, the, the need to sort of satisfy the ego, etc. And w- once you sort of do some of this inner work, if you will, right, whether it's through psychotherapy, uh, psychedelic medicine, or just kind of difficult, painful experiences. I actually do think hitting rock bottom is its, is its own sort of, um, you know, initiation, if you will. And it sounds like for you, it kind of took all all of these things to start to put you in a, you know, a, a different different path and maybe even perspective in life. Yeah, I think the question that starts coming up is like, who, and the one that recently is coming up is like, who am I? You know, mm-hmm. like, who am I actually? And so this might sound weird to the performers out there, but it's, you know, you're digging and it's like, okay, well, if my company was worth a hundred million, like, why is that important? Mm -hmm. You know, and what of that have I picked up and learned and what is real? And so a lot of stuff I'm trying to work through now is just, you know, because the the urges are still there. And so we're building what's like a massive vision. Like I want to build and we'll pick up the story again, but I want to build a personal transformation engine. But then you ask yourself, well, does it need to be 50 locations? Yeah. And, or should it be five? And it's like a lifestyle and there's, 
these two competing needs that I can feel like there's this part of me that's, as I said, like guiding someone through a cold plunge, watching them smile, Mm -hmm. you know, on Christmas for the first time, somebody called me who's been sober Mm -hmm. for a year, who's become one of my best friends because of our space. And like those feelings, seeing the awe in people's eyes around these experiences, it it lights up your, you know, your soul. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Not soul, but it lights up like for, for, engineers listening it just lights up a part of you that feels inspired yeah. it's a real feeling there's energy to it it's passion then on the other side there's well i want to build this to make money and i want to be on the podcast mm-hmm. and you know and that's that's still there for me but this side of like okay this stuff inspires me it feels like that's getting to who who am i and mm-hmm. it's wow it's somebody that wants to help others you know it's right. kind of beyond the need for success so yeah, yeah, your your point rings true to me a lot. I, I and I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I I, I don't I, I and I talk about this on Twitter all the time. I don't think there is a you, quite frankly. I think it's a narrative, it's a story or a construction that we create. And sometimes when you have those psychedelic experiences, you you have the experience of that, right? You can intellectually understand my point that I just made, but it's it's different when you kind of like almost like can watch that it that it is sort of a mask, uh, and, and it's something that you sort of you can take off. But to your point. I, I do think um, if there is a self, it's it's really your values, right? What are the things that are important to you? Who do I want to be? What purpose do I want to serve in this world? That's the you. Um, or uh, And I think getting to the heart of that can help shape some of those decisions, right? Like whether do I, do I have a lifestyle business or do I, you know, if I'm not in TechCrunch, I'm not a success. And unfortunately, I feel like in, in our society, like how much money you raise like how big your company is, you know, what you exit for. That's, that's the glory because it's obviously makes sense in a VC back world where it's all about like massive outcomes and ROI. Um, but that's, that's not for everyone, quite frankly. Um, and if it is, it may serve a different purpose, right? Where for me, I I've had bootstrap lifestyle businesses. Um, and that was important for that. What I was trying to achieve with that. Um, and obviously doing a venture back business now, but for me, it's for a very different purpose. It's not for, massive financial gain. It's, it's to be able to have as broad impact, uh, you know, as possible. Um, I want to dig in a, a little bit about, you know, one, one of the, I think really important points, and I, I hope people don't gloss over this, which is the, the issue of addiction. And, you know, I think it's actually a very under addressed and under talked about issue, particularly in tech, um, because I think people associate addiction just with drinking and drugs, which obviously it's a massive part of it. But I, I, I've been sort of being the drum in the last year that, that their addiction is really a spectrum. Um, digital addiction is a huge underaddressed issue, behavioral addictions, right? Whether it's sex or gambling or eating, uh, all of these, or, or, or internet or gaming, pornography, uh, all of these things are, are, are addictions and, and they're underappreciated just because you're not physiologically dependent doesn't mean they're not problematic. They don't cause issues in our lives. And, um, it's worth exploring and addressing. I find addictions to be the hardest thing in the world to treat, certainly as a psychologist uh, and and someone who's a psychiatry professor and and training others to do it because it often is, uh, you know, we understand like the surface level of it, right? It's often to an avoidance of unpleasant sort of thoughts, feelings, memories, emotions. um, And it numbs obviously, you know, that, but it really does help addressing sort of the root cause uh, of some of those things. And also what's missing in people's lives, whether it's, significant relationships, community, like you were talking about. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that in sort of your road to redemption, if you will, um, and kind of, you know, overcoming your own addictions and vices. Um, how did you sort of navigate, you know, uh, sort of your healing process and, and, and what can people take away from that? Right. Cause there is so many different things to approach, uh, and, and, and where do people start? Yeah. So huge question. And this kind of, you know, that your points on where your transformation came from, we can get into when I came back and working at Ethereum mm-hmm. and, and how that transformed into the current business. Um, but on addiction specifically, this is something I'm extremely passionate about just because I like to work through my own problems. And this was the idea around the entire community we're building. Mm-hmm. It was like, what worked for me? How do we make that scalable for others? Mm-hmm. And at first it was like, oh, it's the psychedelic medicines. Yeah. And 30 of my friends went and tried, came back, within one month back to the old habits, mm. you know, then it's like, oh, well, maybe meditation helps. Mm-hmm. 14% of people in the U S have a meditation practice. 86% do not. It's a very challenging mm-hmm. technique to pick up. Yep. And so while I was at Ethereum, I found success from 
those two things, as I mentioned, and I was trying to teach like my team mm -hmm. at conferences, friends, sharing, writing these crazy blog posts, sharing them and like literally zero traction. Wow. Even people like amazing entrepreneurs, super disciplined, meditate 300 times a year. And then will call me like, Hey, I think I'm going to quit. I don't know if I'm seeing the benefits. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well that on its own is a single player game. Mm -hmm. Very, very challenging yep. in terms of your thinking you know, conversions, it's to, to the conversion is low. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, well, what is working for me? Mm -hmm. And so I've been going, you know, the, the other is environment. And so, okay. Like a lot of my friends who failed, it's they're at uh, a bar, mm -hmm. you know, and at the bar, they're going to pick up girls yes. and you're around alcohol. You're at a restaurant, you're around alcohol. And it always starts as like, Oh, I can have a few drinks slowly declines. And so it's, what is the replacement? for that. And you can't really go to a fitness class at night. You don't want to go to an necessarily a doctor's office or AA where you feel mm -hmm. like I have to admit I'm an addict and there's something wrong. You want to feel in a place where you feel inspired. Mm -hmm. And so my fiance introduced me to bathhouses, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, Archimedes in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I lived there for a while, We'd go every week. And it's a Russian traditional place. There's not really any explanation of the health benefits bright lights, you yeah. know, it's, it's not the same as a hospitality, like Soho house, for right. example. And it was amazing. Every time no one is on their phone, you're in mm -hmm. your body, you're feeling amazing. You're any nervousness you have about social anxiety, the cold boosting the norepinephrine in the brain, mm -hmm. making you feel vigilant, attentive, alive. So like you naturally want to chat. And so we just found these experiences to be super, super powerful, a healthy way to socialize and engage. And then I had uh, a fiance and, and, and so there's a couple things with, with her, right? Mm -hmm. Like love and compassion makes you feel loved, right. but it's also somebody to be vulnerable with mm -hmm. and to get accountability from. And so if you don't have a partner, I think like these men's groups that are growing, mm -hmm. which gives you a chance via, you know, physical or, or digital to just say like, what were your wins this week? Yeah. Have someone listen to you and like make you feel seen and also be able to share and, and, and someone to hold you accountable. And so I think the mixture of all of those yeah. is seeming to be super powerful for addiction, at least for me. And it's kind of what I, what I want to share. And it's, you know, the psychedelic medicine, what it does for, for me, really, like there's mystical experiences. Great. Mm -hmm. There's this, you mentioned these experiences of this thought of I, if that, imagine you didn't have an identity, mm -hmm. you know, you're not a male, you're not this age. You're not like the funny guy. You're not a sports fan. Mm -hmm. All that stuff fades away. And this is, it's like, who am I? That's what you feel. And when you, when you don't have the identity, you feel connected to others. You actually feel like everyone's the same. So you feel this unbridled love. And so, yeah, you have this mystical, amazing experience, which is beautiful. And I would say you have a 30 day and it changes mm -hmm. depending on the amount taken, the substance, but you have a 30 day window where there's a lot of neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and you can change habits. And so I think they're very powerful if you're dealing with addiction to make the local changes. Mm. But if you don't make the local changes in your daily practice, and, and I like to also recommend mindfulness, yeah. it doesn't have to be meditation. It can be breath work. It can be going for a walk. It can be like writing or uh, playing music, whatever it is. It's just time to yourself, mm -hmm. you know, allowing boredom to, uh, to be there. And then uh, this like men's group idea. So I think, the combination of all those mm -hmm. things is enough to really help with, with substance problems. And then corollary, which we'll get into, I have all those practices mm -hmm. and found myself during COVID phone addiction yeah, and totally. like the stats on a phone addiction. It's, it's, it's from somebody who knows what being addicted to drugs feels like. Yep. It's, it's the same feeling. Absolutely. And so if you're sitting there watching a movie, and you have the urge to check Twitter. That's not, <laughs> yeah. that's not normal. No, you know, crazy. like, and I found like, Oh, well, sorry, I'll stop there. And yeah, we can get into that. Well, I, I, I thank you for sharing that. I, you know, and I think it's such an important point that I want to reiterate about. Um, I generally find most individual techniques standalone are not silver bullets. You get people who are obviously really big, um, advocates of them because maybe it has changed their life or, or maybe that's their, their kind of thing. Um, but I, I always tell people, I'm like, look, I, I literally teach and practice a mindfulness based therapy. I'm a huge fan of mindfulness, obviously, but even then, like I do it as part of act or acceptance and commitment therapy. It's literally one of six different processes. 
right? And if I, if I only had one of those six tools, I don't think I could actually help very many people, but it's the combination of like literally what's one sixth of many other things that I do. And for some patients, it, it helps more. Some patients, quite frankly, it helps less. I find my ADHD kind of entrepreneurs, they have a very hard time sticking with a sitting down, eyes closed meditation practice. We adjust it. I actually am a big fan of walking meditation for those folks because it's just active. They can keep their eyes open. They're much more likely to do it, quite frankly, and it gets the restlessness out just by walking. So just an example of like not being a panacea. And same thing, I'm obviously a big fan of psychedelic medicine and I'm an advisor to a company called Mindbloom that, that does that with ketamine. But I, I even say that too. I'm like, it's not a panacea. Uh, really, I, I very much do believe in the concept of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and that you need to integrate these experiences into the real world. And we know this from history, right? Like, you know, the 60s and 70s were supposed to change the world. It didn't. It kind of fueled the cocaine and crack addicted 80s. And I was like, what happened to like the whole counterculture? And I think it was because, you know, people came down from these mystical experiences and there's they're still a dish full of uh, dishes to be washed as, uh, as was written about in the Tim Leary biography. And like someone has to do the dishes. Who's going to do the dishes? Is sort of became a refrain for the 1960s and I still think is is sort of true today. But I, I think your your conclusion from that, which is, look, a, a multimodal uh, intervention is probably going to be best. I, I very much agree with that. And it's going to be probably different for each person, right? Like the three, four, five things that, that work for you is going to make sense. Maybe you already feel very connected. You, you have significant relationships and friends, and maybe the community part's not as important. But I would say for a lot of folks that I know that are a little bit more isolated, lonely, or maybe they don't have the depth of connection that they need. Uh, maybe that's all they need for their addiction, right? This is like, they, they just, it's really the social aspect that's missing for them. Um, so I think you got to like personalize it and understand what your underlying needs are uh, and come up with sort of some combination treatment that is is best for you. And the last thing I would say is don't do it alone. I love what you said about men's groups. That's obviously a big thing of what we're doing at Maximus. We have an online group. So um, if anyone's listening and they're like, you know what, that sounds appealing to me, join us. It's, uh, I believe it's, um, discord.maximustribe.com. You can join our Discord and we have little squads that will keep you accountable. And yeah, if you want to share your wins and losses for the week, we'll we'll help support you through that too. Yeah, and then that one, whenever I join, I'm like, not Maximus specifically, men's groups. You know, if you're thinking, oh, that sounds silly. I don't want to share. These are strangers. There's always that discomfort. Mm -hmm. It's a strange kind of weird thing to do. And so you come and you're like, I don't want to do it. Always for me, there's like, hmm. And then I do it and I feel significantly better. Very similar to think about it like a mental workout, you know, like going to the gym, like you need to flex these emotional mm -hmm. muscles. And, and so even though there's a bit of resistance there, that's completely normal. So don't let that, that throw you off. I think one other thing to add that's interesting that we found is a lot of people that are struggling don't want to ask for help mm -hmm. and they also don't even know how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So if I was to ask most people, I would say like, you know, 30 to 40 age range, what emotions did you feel today? I think the answer would be, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that average person going from that to, I'm going to see a therapist, be vulnerable, explain my problems is like a massive huge jump. So how do you make these things fun and cool? And maybe not as deep, but what we found, and it, you know, the story came, started with an ice bath in a backyard, but we found as if, you know, what is the equivalent now that people want to be mentally more healthy? Where is the space for that? And so what if instead of going to a traditional bar, you could come to the social space that felt cool, amazing music, amazing design, great vibe. You're doing the sauna, you're feeling great. You're doing this ice bath and then there's a class. And so in the sauna, it's completely dark. Someone's playing a drum. You're sharing your fear. You're letting go. Maybe you're doing an eye gaze and an ice bath to connect. Maybe you're sharing a piece of gratitude. So taking kind of a lot of these things you're saying and weaving them into a class format, that's cool. And I don't think many people have tried that yet because a lot of mental health is like, hey, there's something wrong with you. Press. Right. And, and for most people, great. If you're willing to admit that there are tools. But for a lot of my friends, I just found they're, they're not even... They don't even want like that's not even on their radar. So it's like, how do you allow people to secretly feel good, which mm -hmm. I think is really powerful. I think that's a huge thing. Yeah, and that's why I like I, I think if you position it as like a support group, I'm like, guys, <laughs> generally, unless they're really looking for support, it's different if you're going through something. Um, but I, I think that positioning sounds a little too like, oh, I got to talk about my feelings and kumbaya for for most guys. Um, versus, 
the way that I frame it is, look, guys have been in groups since the beginning of time, right? In, in, in Jack Donovan's book, The Way of Man, he literally, well, I think one of the, the titles of the chapters is the, the Way of Man is the Way of the Gang. Uh, and what he means by that is not just street gangs, but like literally we kind of uh, were uh, raised in hunter-gatherer societies where you probably were with a band of people, like 10 to 25 people that you uh, use for cooperative hunting to bring down like a woolly mammoth because you can't do that by yourself. And so we, we're very much used to, in fact, working and living together in very small, close-knit groups, literally for the last 50,000 years. And, and even in the most recent times, you did that in school, you did that with uh, sporting clubs or activities uh, and maybe small workplaces. Uh, and we've lost, I think, a lot of that. And I think um, people are feeling very isolated because it's kind of up to you to kind of make your own maybe group. Maybe you have individual friends. Maybe you have a squad or click if you're lucky. Uh, but I, I, think, I think it's literally our sort of evolutionary history to be in these small groups. Um, and not just for when things are bad. It's literally like mutual reliance, um, both physically and I think emotionally. Um, and so, you know, I, I, the guys sitting around a fire, like coming back from a hunt or battle, uh, whatever it is, and talking about what they just went through is, is I don't consider that group therapy. I think that's, that's literally part of our heritage. And, you know, we're trying to recreate that online in, in you know, a lot of different ways. Um, so last, last thing that I'd love to get into is, um, uh, you mentioned sort of your work with Ethereum. Tell me about how you got into crypto. Uh, cause that's an interesting last bit. And then how did that transition to, you know, obviously what you're doing now, you alluded to it in terms of getting all these people to start, you know, trying some of these practices, but what made you take the leap into like, you know, trying entrepreneurship again? Yeah. So there's a great story here and a battle again with, with ego, how you mentioned lifestyle business versus like this huge thing. And, and so the person I went and did the ayahuasca with actually was one of the founders of Polychain mm -hmm. Capital, one of the largest uh, crypto funds. And he said, Hey, we're funding all these companies. You know, you've got experience building engineering teams and dealing with like really deep technical challenges. Can you, can you help? A lot of these people are just out of school, mm -hmm. uh, professors, can you like assist? And so I went and met with a bunch of companies from their portfolio and was just really, there was a change in, in, Hey, I want to make money to, Hey, these people are really smart. Mm -hmm. Like, this is so interesting. Why are all these people like, like the smartest people I'd ever encountered? Why are they all interested in this thing? Mm -hmm. And at the start of crypto really was what it was like. You were either super passionate about decentralization, mm -hmm. quirky fringe, or like genius computer science researcher. Mm -hmm. And so it was just so interesting. And so I, I, you know, I moved to San Francisco, got caught in the hype, <laughs> um, and and joined uh, a company out of their portfolio. And then I had been interacting with the Ethereum Foundation a lot, helping create community. And so this is what, what I like to do is reach out and interview people, learn, and then turn that into content. It's like my, my superpower. And so I had done a bunch of cool stuff for Ethereum just kind of because I thought it was cool. So I made a community of security researchers in Telegram that really took off. I made another community of community managers. I made a community of uh, developers. We did interviews where we interviewed all the best developers in the space asking what they needed from Ethereum and then published the results. And the foundation was like, why, are, why is this guy doing all this? <laughs> so uh, I ended up joining the Ethereum Foundation, living in San Francisco and Berlin and all these different hubs, traveling around, living in a house together with a bunch of people for like two months at a time. My fiance came with me. We both had one backpack for like two and a half <laughs> years. And it was amazing, like the, the pace of learning. And again, it's like, okay, well, my background isn't in software engineering. It's not even in engineering. I worked in hardware. And so I have to learn like solidity. I need to understand how Ethereum works. Right. This is like one of the most complex technical things out there. Like, can I do it? I'm sitting around with, you know, in year one, a bunch of developers around a table using like the craziest jargon, a web three and, you know, different, different tools mm. and like all these different libraries and solidity and audits and, you know, consensus. And, and you're just like, okay, I'm, I feel like the dumbest person here. And I sat through it. I read, I worked so hard. I, I talked to people I learned and it was such an amazing experience. Like Ethereum exploded the ecosystem from when I was involved, it was around 10 bucks, right? you know, and then, and then just, you know, I was all of a sudden working on grants and then ecosystem growth and working with developers um, to improve the system and talking to all these VCs that I had admired and 
you know, just people, some of the people I was working with were some of the most inspirational people I'd ever been around. Mm -hmm. And it went from, you know, Hey, I'm not good enough to like, I'm crushing it. We're growing. It's the number one smart contract platform worldwide. Mm -hmm. People are hyped. Like it just felt so inspiring to be in this place where now I've won, you know, and for the first time I had money. So I was investing in 2017. I was putting like all my salary into Mm -hmm. ETH and, and, you know, lucky enough through this role, met a bunch of early stage teams and kind of just wanted to back some of my friends. And for the first time I was financially sound. And so now I'm feeling like confidence, bravery, like all this work was worth it. And then I also have this like amazing fiance and these practices that I'm doing on Mm -hmm. the side every day. And so that, you know, how does that end? Right. Mm -hmm. And so everything's going super well. I'm in Toronto Mm -hmm. and I, build this ice bath in my backyard Mm -hmm. and it was just to solve my own problem of, I love cold plunges. My water doesn't go cold enough. And so every night for a summer, uh, I had, you know, one of my partners asked me to move back to Toronto and, and we would do this together, my fiance, my partner and, and two facilitators. Mm -hmm. And we would um, run these ice baths and they would be with, you know, essential oils and sound bowls and all this kind of kooky Mm -hmm. stuff. So you go to like, okay, well, I'm an Ivy grad and work at Ethereum. I'm in the back wearing a little Banya hat and like playing a sound bowl like every night. Like, why am I doing this? And it was because for the first time I would see people get in the ice bath and get into a state of meditation or presence, Mm -hmm. like full stop, Uh, you know, lawyers that are 50 don't care about spirituality and, and like they would stop and be like, holy shit. And so then we'd hang out around a campfire in my backyard. We grew a WhatsApp group to like 200 people. Um, people would just show up at my house. I'd be having coffee in the morning and they would be out there. I was like, okay, this is cool. And so we, you know, we're like, what's the next step? It was becoming winter. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, maybe we can do a little pop-up for, for our community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what you see behind me is a garage. Yeah. It's 800 square feet. And we put a sauna in it, did all the reno ourselves, put up a little landing page in a ice bath. And then it kind of transitioned from this meditation thing to like a social hangout. And and we talked a bit about this before, but I started seeing people become friends, let down their boundaries. Like people would meet in the sauna and go on a ski trip. People would meet in the sauna and start dating. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden we're doing classes. Like, no, this wasn't planning to be a business. Yeah. 30 people a day are coming and they're loving it. And I'm starting to get more and more satisfaction from this. Right. But on the flip side, I'm like very senior role at Ethereum everything's crushing it. I love crypto. I love the people. And there's like some ego attached to that because of how much it's on Twitter and like raising funds and all these things. And, but I'm, but I'm doing this and I'm like so passionate about it. And so then COVID hits and we had been doing breath work and so I'm a breath work facilitator and it's a modality I've used for a long time and was attracted to because it really worked for people that struggled to meditate. Mm-hmm. And we start doing breath works on zoom and on zoom, we have this like crazy, experience where like 20 people come, then 40, then 80, then 120, then 200. And it's like, the zoom is bumping. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is cool. And people are asking for recordings. They're saying like, Hey, could you do one for sleep? Could you do one for my morning routine? Like, could you put them to YouTube? They're donating money. They're saying like, Hey, like, can we get more? And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, this is cool. And, And at that point, I realized there might be something bigger here than a space. It was kind of the culmination of all the things that had worked for me mm. in a way that is like very cool and inspiring. And so like even our breath works, you know, they're like Burning Man electronic music. It's like super fun. It's not saying, Hey, this is spiritual or there's enlightenment. It's using science mm-hmm. backed, coherent breathing, box breathing, um, colotropic style mm-hmm. breathing as like super ventilation, Wim Hof method, all these different kinds that was just, just enormous amount of science yep. around what's happening at a cellular level. And giving them to people in a way that's like fun. And Mm -hmm. then, so we saw that grow. And so we decided to build an app and got to a point where I had to make a decision. Like I'm now Mm -hmm. running, okay, you know, there's a digital content app business, kind of like a headspace. And there's a physical business. Like these are, this is a lot. And so I kind of looked at Ethereum and I I had to, it was a very tough decision for me. And, and, you know, if you talk about regrets, I'll look back and the, the money side of me is like, Oh man, if I had started a venture fund, you know, two years ago, like I was there, like the first DeFi 
the first DeFi conference was a, was a, there was a presentation at DevCon in Prague and it was like the first time the word DeFi was out there and I led a panel on it. Mm-hmm. And my, my ego mind was saying, oh, like you were there, you could have started a podcast, you could have raised a DeFi fund. Mm-hmm. And, I'm really, and I'm really trying to just let that stuff go. That's like the old me. Right. And that's where the transformation has come. It's like, I want to build something that helps people, that gives me these feelings I mentioned where, you know, someone's calling me on Christmas because they don't, they're not addicted anymore, totally. you know, or they've conquered their addiction. So that's for me was like, even though there is some ego in this, also wanting it to be big in many locations and talk about my journey, there's like this heart piece, which I never really felt for the crypto product itself. And that's the sign to me that like, okay, you're doing the right thing. Like I can feel the joy that comes from, you know, also it was going to sound kooky, but I spent the weekend a couple of weeks ago developing a couple's breath work mm-hmm. where there's like picking the music, facilitating mm-hmm. it. There's like an eye gaze involved and like thinking about what to say and like record. And it was so much joy. And so to me, it's like, okay, well, like that's a sign that you want to be doing more creative stuff. Right. right? So yeah. Amazing story. Uh, you know, I think the good thing about crypto though is, uh, you know, you can still invest in it, even if you decide not to have it be your full-time thing. I actually met, um, uh, Olaf Carlson, we in San Francisco years ago, and I'm an LP in Polychain. And so I, I I'm sure I, there was some fun. I was like, should I have gotten into crypto? And I was like, I just invested in it. And you know, you get to reap the, the rewards that way and that's fine. And I can work on the more mission driven stuff just like you. Um, but by the way, one of the things that I really like about the physical space aspect of what you're doing is, you know, there are these like the battery in San Francisco or Soho houses in major cities around the world. But to me, they're, they're almost just like just exclusive fancy spaces. It's not really different than a bar club or a lounge. It's just for elitist people who want to impress guests. And so they take them there not to knock any of those places. I enjoy them very much, but it's not a different experience really. Right. It's just a more exclusive, nicer version of anything you can get elsewhere, but it's very different to be in a social space that is activity oriented, right? Like you're sitting in a sauna, you're sitting in an ice bath or you're doing breath work, um, which is a very different experience than holding alcohol and chatting, right? Like in a cocktail lounge kind of thing. So I, I, I really actually, and I talk about this with guys, guys bond over activities, especially and doing things together, like almost creates that kind of experience of closeness. Uh, cause you, cause you did something together. Um, so that I think is a very unique thing about what you're doing. Um, and I, I think it, it enhances the socialization. That... Yeah. The one cool piece on that, which is different, it's kind of the secret is that like you mentioned, like this is a social experience. Mm-hmm. And so you go to a lot of these spaces and they're, they're bars, exclusive social clubs, but then there are also, uh, health spaces. So like an infrared sauna, a float, those are single player. You go on your own for health. Right. And so the key is like, can you use these things to drive social? So like, why wouldn't you want to hang out? Like we have a insane fire pit mm-hmm. built into our new space inside with like a crazy cover. So everyone in between sits around a fire because humans since the beginning of time yep. have gathered around a fire to share stories. Mm-hmm. And so everything, the lighting, it's red lighting because red makes you feel more comfortable. You look better. You feel more willing to share. You feel more cozy. So it's geared in a healthy way to have you connect and, and share. And then not only that, that's like the social piece. Great. But then there's like performances. So you're in the sauna and someone's taking you through these like mental health exercises, which we're not going to call them that, mm-hmm. but we, you know, you'd mentioned it's like a fear release. And like, what are you afraid of? Six people share in the dark and you're kind of like normal person. You go into this place. It's really cool. Music's cool. You're not expecting to have like an emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And so if we can deliver those at scale on demand, get people into their heart and body. That's insane, you know, and it's accessible. So like, okay, it's 30 bucks a session. Like that's great. You can go and feel better at any time. Um, so yeah, not that just like thinking about that is like my life mission now. Mm -hmm. And that makes it easy to not think about the, you know, the money and other (laughs) stuff before. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's so beautiful. I think when people start to find their mission and their purpose, I almost had a very serious, uh, similar experience. I mean, I was, um, you know, working for a venture capital fund, uh, driving down from San Francisco to Menlo Park every day. And I remember I was like, okay, I got to listen to VC podcasts. I would listen to whatever 20 minute VC uh, every once in a while. And I think I did that like literally a few times before I was like, boy, this is really boring. <laughs> and I kept on listening instead to like, 
this uh, YouTube channel of the Minnesota Men's Conference, whereas these great speakers like Robert Bly and, um, you know, uh, Michael Mead and these great storytellers and um, um, Robert Moore, who wrote um, King Warrior, Magician Lover. And I would just listen to them because it'd be like a long 45 minute hour, sometimes hour drive in traffic. And it was so much more compelling. And it was kind of funny because the, the whole time that I was working there, I was like, I'm going to be an investor. I'm going to go down this venture route after, you know, starting these companies. I don't want to start another company at this point because of all of the, the crazy challenges that you mentioned. And, and funnily, after, you know, the year I spent there, I obviously ended up starting this company. And, and in, in hindsight, it was almost like, like stupidly obvious, right? Like I almost want to like want to hit myself in the head and be like, why did you just start this sooner? Like, obviously that's what you cared about. Like, and it was, it was unconscious though. I was just like, there was a part of me that was telling me what my, sort of, if you want soul, spirit, whatever, uh, was compelled to do was like, like, I'm not listening to these investor podcasts. That's not what I, I'm compelled by. It's really, you know, like this whole, uh, idea of like, can I almost like pass the torch on from the mythopoetic men's movement, which kind of unfortunately died out and, and carry that for in the sort of social media generation. Right. And, it, and it's, it's very parallel to sort of your story about finding your way around health and wellness practices. 